Hi, everyone, and welcome. Do you know what time it is? That's right. It's time for your midweek Bible study. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. It's great to be with you once again. Thanks for joining me. Today is Wednesday, June 21st. Today we begin a brand new study in 1st and 2nd Timothy. In essence, the book of 1st Timothy is a leadership manual for church organization and administration. And in 2nd Timothy, it's essentially Paul's last words. But there's so much more to talk about. So let's begin with 1st Timothy chapter 1. We're going to look at the first 11 verses, verses 1 to 11. And we're going to talk about Paul's introduction and also warnings against false teachings. But as we always do, let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Almighty God, thank you for your amazing grace and love. Thank you for this chance we have to study your word today. Thanks for all that have come to participate. Lord, we pray that you are blessed by this time, and we thank you for the blessing of your word. Change us, Lord. Rearrange us through this study. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen and Amen. If you have your Bible or Bible apps, open them up to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. And let's find out what the Apostle Paul has to say. Here we go. This letter is from Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, appointed by the command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus who gives us hope. I am writing to Timothy, my true son in the faith. May God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord give you grace, mercy, and peace. When I left for Macedonia, I urged you to stay there in Ephesus and stop those whose teaching is contrary to the truth. Don't let them waste their time in endless discussion of myths and spiritual pedigrees. These things only lead to meaningless speculations which don't help people live a life of faith in God. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and genuine faith. But some people have missed this whole point. They have turned away from these things and spent their time in meaningless discussions. They want to be known as teachers of the law of Moses, but they don't know what they're talking about, even though they speak so confidently. We know that the law is good whenever used correctly, for the law was not intended for people to do what is right. It is for people who are lawless and rebellious, who are ungodly and sinful, who consider nothing sacred and defile what is holy, who kill their father and mother or commit other murders. The law is for people who are sexually immoral or who practice homosexuality or are slave traders, liars, promise breakers, or who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our blessed God. Let's begin with verses 1 and 2, shall we? Because they contain Paul's introduction and greeting. Let's see what he says. Verse 1 reads, This letter is from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, appointed by the command of God our Savior and Jesus Christ, who gives us hope. Our first question of the day is this. Paul begins this verse by identifying three key points. What are they? Paul begins first with his name, then his spiritual title, and then the authority behind that title. Let's start with his name. At this time, he was known as Paul, though he was born Saul. As shown in Acts 13:9, he would leave his birth name behind during his first missionary journey. And we know that prior to his conversion, Paul, then Saul, was a strong opponent of the Christian church. Now let's talk about his spiritual title. The word apostle comes from the Greek word apostolis, which means one who is sent. Paul was an apostle appointed personally by Jesus Christ himself. His commission to the position came directly from God on the road to Damascus. I would encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 9.1 and 1 Corinthians 15.8 for more. The title apostle was basically reserved for certain followers of Christ who have accompanied Jesus and had seen the risen Lord. 
Paul presented this important credential of apostleship in most of his letters as a foundation for his instruction. And lastly, let's talk about the authority behind the title. First, Paul calls God our Savior. Paul used the phrase our Savior six times in the letters to Timothy and Titus. Paul may have used this particular Greek word soter because at the time the cruel emperor Nero applied it to himself. The apostle would not have hesitated to renounce Nero's claim. Paul reminded his readers who the true Savior was. And second, Paul calls Jesus Christ our hope. Our hope rests in Jesus Christ. He is the embodiment of our faith, the basis of our eternal life. When we place our hope in Christ, we are not pacified with vague maybes, but instead are given certainties. We hope for what we already know is ours. Next up, verse 2, still in the introduction. I am writing to Timothy, my true son in the faith. May God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord give you grace, mercy, and peace. The question is, who is Paul writing to in this letter? What is Paul's relationship with that person? And what encouragement was Paul offering to him? This verse completes Paul's introduction, as I just said, and it's in standard style. Right off the bat, we see that this letter was written to Timothy. Now, as a side note, this is one of four personal New Testament letters by Paul. The others are 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, which we'll get to this fall. 1 Timothy has also been called the first of the pastoral epistles. Also included in that are 2 Timothy and Titus, so there are three altogether. All of Paul's letters express pastoral concerns, but these three relate specifically to local church issues, and Timothy was the only person to receive two personal letters from Paul in the New Testament. So let's get back to the answer. Here Paul calls Timothy my true son in the faith. Paul and Timothy had developed a special bond, like father and son. As such, this most likely meant that Paul had led Timothy to faith in Christ. It's also interesting to note that Timothy and Titus were the only two men Paul called true sons of faith. We'll read about that in Titus 1.4. Paul used grace and peace as a standard greeting in all of his letters, but this is the only time in his letters where he used the word mercy. Mercy carries with it the Old Testament picture of God's loving kindness. God's mercy helps us day to day. Paul knew that Timothy was facing a difficult situation in Ephesus, so he added the word mercy to reassure Timothy of God's protection and guidance. Lastly, it's important for us to note that the phrase God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord in this verse. By using this phrase, Paul pointed to Jesus as a full person of the Godhead. Both God the Father and Christ the Lord are co-equal in providing the resources of grace, mercy, and peace. So Paul was stating that he recognized the full deity of Jesus. Now in our remaining verses 3 through 11, Paul will talk about warnings against false teachings. Let's get to it, starting with verse 3. When I left for Macedonia, I urged you to stay there in Ephesus and stop those whose teaching is contrary to the truth. The question is, why did Paul urge Timothy to stay in Ephesus? What was going on there? Paul first visited Ephesus on his second missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18, verses 19 to 21. Later, on his third missionary journey, he stayed there for almost three years, Acts 19. Ephesus, along with Rome, Corinth, Antioch, and Alexandria, was a major city in the Roman Empire. Now, Ephesus was a center for the commerce, politics, and religions of Asia Minor, and the location of the temple dedicated to the goddess Artemis. Paul left Timothy in the troubled Ephesian church while he traveled on to Macedonia. Then he wrote to his young protege from there. Paul gave Timothy a difficult task. He gave Timothy strong commands and loving encouragement 
because it seems he was a bit timid and somewhat reluctant. Timothy was to be undaunted and unintimidated by those teachers who were most likely older men, whose teachings is contrary to the truth, that is, doctrine other than the teaching of Jesus, the apostles, and the Old Testament. The English word doctrine came to mean the central truths or principles of a philosophy or religion. Paul used the term in writing to Timothy to refer to the unchanging truths of the gospel. No one was at liberty to change that doctrine. Next up, verse 4. It reads, Don't let them waste their time in endless discussion of myths and spiritual pedigrees. These things only lead to meaningless speculations which don't help people live a life of faith in God. Here's the question. What were the myths and spiritual pedigrees Paul spoke of in this verse, and how could they affect the believers? I think there are two possibilities regarding the myths and spiritual pedigrees Paul spoke of. First, the church of Ephesus may have been troubled by the same type of heresy that threatened the church in Colossae, the teaching that to be acceptable to God, a person had to discover a certain hidden knowledge and had to worship angels. You can read about that a little bit more in Colossians 2, verse 8 and 18. And second, some Ephesians thought that it would aid their salvation, so they constructed mythical stories based on Old Testament history or genealogies. Perhaps they placed too much emphasis on Jewish writings, such as the Book of Jubilees. These myths and spiritual pedigrees only serve to promote arguments and lead to discussion about ideas that didn't even come from Scripture, but from the minds of these false teachers. This, in turn, did not help people live a life of faith in God because it took valuable time away from teaching the truth of Scripture and spreading the gospel. So Paul urged Timothy to remain in Ephesus instead of traveling with him in order to stifle the false teachers and the tales that they were telling because they were only motivated by their own interests rather than Christ's. Next up, verse 5. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and genuine faith. The question is, what does Paul say is the purpose of his instruction to Timothy, and why was this important in light of the false teachers? Paul continued in his instruction to Timothy, saying that the correction of the false teachers would do them good and not harm. The false teachers were motivated by mere curiosity and a desire to gain prestige as intellectuals. In contrast, genuine Christian teachers are filled with love, and there are three sources of real love. The first involves a pure heart. In Matthew 5.8, Jesus said, God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. A pure heart is devoted to God and free from guilt and corruption. We must keep ourselves morally straight. God purifies us, but there is action we must take to keep morally fit. Daily application of God's word has a purifying effect on our heart and mind. It enables us to love freely. Next is a clear conscience. In order to love properly, we have to have a clear conscience. First, it must be clean from unconfessed sin so the guilt doesn't hinder us. Second, our motives must be free from pride and personal gain. Then we can love openly. And lastly, we must have genuine faith. When we attempt to love others without genuine faith in Christ, our efforts to minister become hollow and self-serving. Genuine faith enables us to love genuinely. The command and instructions in this letter to Timothy reveal Paul's desire to maintain the purest truth in all the church's teachings. Just as a mother nourishes her child with pure foods, Paul nourished the infant church with only pure teaching, the truth of God's word. He focused on the truth and love of the gospel. Next, let's look at verses 6 and 7 together. They read, But some people have missed this whole point. 
They have turned away from these things and spent their time in meaningless discussions. They want to be known as teachers of the law of Moses, but they don't know what they're talking about, even though they speak so confidently. Here's our question. Paul again refers to some people as the false teachers, including missing the point which we just talked about in verse 5. What are these false teachers spending their time doing, and who do they aspire to be? These false teachers had diverted from the pure heart, good conscience, and genuine faith mentioned in that previous verse. The Greek term Paul uses here for these false teachers missing the point is harmenteno. In medical contexts, the same word is used to describe dislocated limbs. In other words, these false teachers had gotten their beliefs bent out of shape into something unnatural and unhealthy. Paul also said these false teachers spent a lot of time engaging in meaningless discussions. This can also be translated as empty talk, including the idea of random, unimportant discussions. Paul's point here is not to criticize serious study of the law, but he is condemning a legalistic, shallow focus of the law and the wrong uses of it. Myths, traditions, and genealogies have taken priority over the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and the true teachings of the gospel. Then in verse 7, Paul wrote against those who wanted to be known as teachers of the law of Moses. These men taught strange philosophical theories and ideas loosely based on the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. These were likely Jews or possibly Gentile converts to Judaism, and they may have even dressed as rabbis or sought privileged positions in the local synagogues or in the Christian house church gatherings, though it is uncertain in this context. These false teachers had two problems. First, they lacked true knowledge. They had controversy, enthusiasm, and speculation, but none of the required understanding expected of a teacher. Second, they were not only misinformed, but arrogant and prone to speaking when they just should have been listening. This is a sign not only of inaccurate understanding, but also of pride. What was clear about these people was they had wandered away from the gospel, the truth, the love, and slipped into meaningless drivel that didn't help anybody. In fact, it even hurt the church. Next is verse 8. It says, we know that the law is good when used correctly, or as the English Standard Version says, now we know that the law is good, even if one uses it lawfully. The question is, in this verse, Paul transitions away from those who desire to be seen as teachers into something else. What is it that he transitions into? Here, Paul writes the law is good. The Mosaic law was of great importance to Paul. He was raised in the Jewish culture and religion, studied under the Jewish teacher Gamaliel, and lived as a Pharisee according to the law. His entire life had been focused on the law prior to his conversion to Christianity. Yet the law could also be mishandled. Paul notes the condition, especially in the ESV translation, when it's used as lawfully. This can also be understood as legitimately or properly. The Greek words nomos, which means law, or nomenos, which means lawfully, are both used in this verse, creating a visual and audible parallel which make this verse easy to remember. In a very literal sense, Paul is saying that the law is good when it's used for what it was originally intended. That means that God's law gave direction for living a holy life. In Exodus 20, God showed his people the true function and beauty of his laws. The commandments were designed to lead Israel to a life of practical holiness. In these commandments, People could see the nature of God and his plan for how they should live. But the false teachers in Ephesus had mishandled or illegally handled the law and were causing problems in the church instead. Next, let's look at our last verses together, 9, 10, and 11. They read this way. For the law was not intended for people who do what is right, 
It's for people who are lawless and rebellious, who are ungodly and sinful, who consider nothing sacred and defile what is holy, who kill their father or mother, or commit other murders. The law is for people who are sexually immoral, or who practice homosexuality, or are slave traders, liars, promise breakers, or do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our blessed God. The last question we have today is this. Who does Paul say God's law existed for, and what was its purpose, and how does this apply to us today? In a nutshell, Paul says God's law existed for people who disobeyed God's ways and lived unholy lives. In other words, for those who continued in their sin. In these verses, Paul lists specific actions that break God's laws. They follow the order of the Ten Commandments found in Exodus 20. The first set of sinners corresponds to the first four commandments. You might want to check out Exodus chapter 20, starting with verses 1 to 11. The first thing we see in verse 9 is this. He says, the lawless, or disobedient, as some of your translations will say. These are those who cannot be taught. Also in verse 9, he says, there are the rebellious. They are those who cannot be disciplined. Again in verse 9, the ungodly. These are those who show no reverence for God. Continuing in verse 9, he calls those the sinful. These are those who consider nothing sacred and defile what is holy. Now, the second set of sinners violates the next six commandments, again in Exodus 20, verses 12 to 16. Continuing in verse 9 of the text, he says, Those who kill their father and mother, this is the ultimate act of dishonoring one's parents and breaking the command not to murder. Continuing in verse 9 of the text, those who commit other murders, this also again breaks the command not to murder. Then in verse 10, he says, Those who are sexually immoral or who practice homosexuality. This behavior deals with adultery and all aspects of sexual sin. Also in verse 10, Paul says those who are slave traders. This could also be translated kidnappers, picturing the worst form of theft. Next in verse 10, he says those who are liars and promise breakers. These are people who violate the commandment not to bear false witness. And lastly, again in verse 10, those who contradict the wholesome teaching. This covers anything that might be missed. In verse 11, we read that Paul had been entrusted with the glorious good news. This call became Paul's life mission, and he preached the gospel across the Roman Empire, including Ephesus, where this letter was directed. All who hear, believe, and accept this wholesome teaching have also been entrusted with it. In short, the law is meant to reveal our sin, but using it as guidelines for our response to God leaves us no better off than the false teachers. The law has a descriptive, not a prescriptive role. It brings us face to face with our problem, but does not tell us how to solve it. The good news challenges us to respond in faith to God, who through Christ will forgive our sins. Amen to that. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of our session one, this brand new study in 1 Timothy. What a great start it was. In today's study, let me give you a little bit of a recap. We read about Paul's relationship with Timothy, along with his strong commands and encouragement to Timothy. Paul also addressed the various roles within the church, which are applicable to us as well today. Then we studied about one of Paul's main reasons for writing this letter, which was to address Timothy's struggle with false teachers. Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus as a personal deterrent to those who were promoting their own brands of religion. To help Timothy, Paul reminded him of the central points in the conflict and then followed with a personal comparison between himself and the false teachers. 
Next time, we're going to study 1 Timothy chapter 1, continuing in the latter part, verses 12 through 20, and we'll talk about Paul's gratitude for God's mercy and Timothy's responsibility. Thanks again for being with me today. What a great way to start this new study off. I'm so honored to be with you today. Have a great rest of your day and week. I'll see you right back here next time. Until then, God bless you. Go in peace. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.